remember reading a review of one of my books of how we got the Bible. I was reading a review of it on Amazon. I usually never do that, but somebody said, you should really go look at this review. And somebody said in that, how can he talk about the history of the Bible and not tell how the books were chosen at Nicaea? In other words, it was that this person just assumed they were chosen at Nicaea. There wasn't even a question in their mind that, that it was chosen at Nicaea, that the council of Nicaea chose the books of the Bible. That wasn't even an issue. It was just, how can he not talk about that in this particular book? Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, welcome to a new episode of the Apologetics Podcast. This is Timothy, and I teach apologetics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I'm Garrick, and I serve at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas, where I am a minister in our TVC Institute. Well, one of the things I want to tell all of you about, some of you may not be aware of this, there are posters, t-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, stickers, all sorts of things like that that you can get for this apologetics podcast. And there's a new way that you can go do that and a new website for that. And that website is simply supportapologetics.com. That's it. That's all you have to type in. You don't have to remember anything else. Just type in supportapologetics.com and you can go to a site that lets you get posters, t-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, stickers, all sorts of amazing things at that website. I think that's what the kids call swag, Timothy. Yes, that's, it is. Uh, that's it what is. The, yes. the, the new hip term these days. I think so. Yeah. That, that new hip term that's been around for, you know, what, 20 years, something like that. Yeah. But uh, new to <laughs> us, new to us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah. here's another way also that you can support this podcast, and that is by buying uh, books such as How We Got the Bible. That's a book Garrick and I have both worked on, and uh, How We Got the Bible from Rose Publishing, another way you can support it. But here's what we want to do. Rather than you supporting us right now, we want to give stuff to you. And so we have a giveaway. Now, here's something really cool we're going to do to do with this giveaway. In the past, we've said if you've left kind of a review or whatever like that on iTunes, that you can't win anything else in these. But here's what we're going to do is to say you can either leave a a review on iTunes or go to Amazon Audible. The podcast is now available on Amazon Audible. And so if you've already left an iTunes review and you want to get stuff, then you go to Amazon Audible, leave a review there instead. And so the first 
two people who let us know that they've left a review, they are going to get a gift package with two books and a notebook. And so we've gotten some really cool stuff. Lexum Press has sent us some books and uh, Lexum Press is just doing some great stuff right now. They really are. So they actually have sent us some free books and asked us to give them away on the podcast, which is super nice of our friends at Lexham Press. Everyday Apologetics by Chris Price and The Bedrock of Christianity by Justin Bass. Also, our friend Jay Warner Wallace, who was on the podcast last season, has sent us a copy of his book, Person of Interest. And Jarvis Williams, who was on the podcast last season, gave us a copy of his book, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity. You'll win a couple of those books as well as a special apologetics podcast notebook if you are one of the first two people to review the podcast either on Amazon Audible or on iTunes. Yeah, you'll just write a review on Amazon or iTunes. Then you'll go to the website theapologeticspodcast.com. You'll click the contact button and that's how you'll let us know. And the first two, as we've said, we'll get the two free books, the free notebook. Speaking of amazing things, I got two amazing things to speak of. One of them Timothy doesn't know is coming. I would also, because Timothy wouldn't publicize himself. He's not going to throw in any shameless plugs, but I am not afraid to because I don't benefit from it whatsoever. I would also just strongly recommend to any of our listeners Timothy's book, Why Should I Trust the Bible? This is a resource that I have recommended to multiple folks in my church who are asking those questions. And usually, usually when they come to me, they are asking the question in that exact same phrasing. And so it was, it was well titled. They've found it real helpful. I've found it a helpful resource to, to help others and to have those conversations. So I would highly recommend that one to you as well. And I think we've given, have we given that away before? Timothy? We have, we've given a couple of copies of that away. Yes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe someday in the future, you lucky folks uh, will receive more giveaway free copies. But the other amazing thing we give you completely free of charge here at the Apologetics Podcast is fun. Lots of fun and fun related mostly to church history. So it is now time for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. I have my item right here. It's in my Yoda bucket. And so I'm pulling my item out of the Yoda bucket or my paper that tells me which item for this week. And this week, what I have in it is the bones of Edward the Confessor. The bones of Edward the Confessor. (laughs) um, So so here's the funny thing is we've got a great story behind the bones of Edward the Confessor. Now, just so people know, if it says the confessor about somebody, what it means is they suffered for their faith, but they weren't martyred. That's what that word confessor means. So another one that was a confessor was like Nicholas Confessor, Nicholas the Confessor, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, who we'll run into later on in the program, not this particular program, but later on in this season in some really fun ways. But nonetheless, uh, it means he suffered for his faith, but was not actually actually martyred for his faith. So the bones of Edward the Confessor. So I've got this great picture of Skylar, our second daughter, when we were at Westminster Abbey. So we're visiting Westminster Abbey and she had read about Edward the Confessor. And so she, and it was, I think the first time it occurred to her that, oh my goodness, these people are really like 
buried here. Like they are really dead people here. (laughs) This was very distressing to her. And I have this great picture of her in which she's like outside Westminster Abbey. And she's just kind of looking off in the distance with this very serious, sad look on her face because it has just occurred to her that we are walking around with a bunch of dead people. But Edward the Confessor, early 11th century, he had promised to make a pilgrimage to Rome, but he couldn't make the pilgrimage to Rome. And so the Pope said, you can endow a monastery for St. Peter instead. And so he did. And so he, it was that, that monastery that he laid becomes Westminster Abbey as opposed to St. Paul's Cathedral, which was the Eastminster. And so Westminster Abbey is this monastery that he dedicated, but he became ill and suffered greatly, couldn't attend the consecration of this monastery and died a few days later. And so, um, I, and, and his, his bones have been responsible for many miracles and things like that, at least in popular legend and lore. And so I set before you the bones of Edward the Confessor as my item from our rating of church history. Okay, I like it. Before I go into my reveal, I have two questions. One, why couldn't we name St. Paul's Eastminster? Why not? That's fun. Eastminster, Westminster, East versus West. I like it. It would make it would make a lot of sense. But uh, you know what? I mean, it's 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 the British. They don't maybe maybe the the English they don't like that kind of competition, and so they're just trying to eliminate competition. It's what makes them like soccer as well. Would have been so, the church know. history version of like <laughs> East Coast versus West Coast yeah, uh, yeah. uh, hip hop. That would have been know, or Avengers, the East Coast Avengers, West Coast Avengers. That's right. I mean, yeah, That's we right. could have done that. So. Second question, more personal. What about what about when Skylar first saw, because I'm assuming she has, first saw like not just like buried bodies, but hey, here is here is someone dead for you just to just view into a glass box and 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 see. Did she she's seen one of those, right? I'm sure she has, and I think she immediately refused to look, remembering some trip to the British Museum in which you find some things like that at the British Museum. (laughs) I don't blame her. I do not blame her. Well, Timothy knew this was coming at some point because this was when we started talking about this fun segment. This is the the first thing that came to my mind. It's one of my favorite artifacts, if you will, of church history. In in this case, it's an artifact in that it exists in a text, though, as far as as far as I know, no physical evidence of it somewhere, though, if someone knows about that, then I'd like you to uh, email me and let me know. And that would be Clement's Phoenix, the Phoenix (laughs) of Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome is one of these church history figures that we call uh, part of the apostolic fathers, right? The earliest church writings following the close of the New Testament canon. And Clement writes a few letters in this collection of, of writings we call the Apostolic Fathers. And then in one of these, in First Clement, I believe, uh, in the 25th chapter, he mentions a phoenix. Now, there's a lot of crazy stuff in church history. So the fact that someone talks about a phoenix probably wouldn't surprise you. It might surprise you if that person talks about a phoenix as if it were completely 100% real and tangible and, you know, like existed in a zoo somewhere. He doesn't say that, but that's how he seems to talk about it. He says, let us consider that wonderful sign of the resurrection. That's what he's talking about, which takes place in eastern lands, that is in Arabia and the countries round about. There's a certain bird, which is called a phoenix. This is 
the only one of its kind. So at least he's, you know, he realizes that it's extremely rare (laughs) and lives 500 years. And when the time of its dissolution draws near that it must die, it builds itself a nest of frankincense and myrrh and other spices into which when the time is fulfilled, it enters and dies. Now, for you, Harry Potter fans, you're about you think you know what's coming, but but it doesn't quite go how you're expecting. (laughs) He says, but as the flesh decays, a certain kind of worm is produced, which being nourished by the juices of the dead bird brings forth feathers. Then when it's acquired strength, it takes up that nest in which the bones of its parents and bearing these, it passes from the land of Arabia into Egypt to the city called Heliopolis. And in open day for all to see, right? Flying in the sight of all men, it places them on the altar of the sun. And having done this, hastens back to its former abode. The priest then expects all that fun stuff. And there's more. There's more to be said. But so at least in the first couple centuries of the uh, church, we have mention of a phoenix. It's not the only mention of a phoenix in early uh, Christian literature. It's it's just one of those that is the most striking considering the uh, importance and popularity of this particular writing, the importance of this particular figure, church history figure, Clement being um, early, you know, Bishop of Rome. And so it's always been one of my favorites. Clement's Phoenix, which has even has mention of bones, you know. Yeah, we, we mentioned, bring those against one another. And as we talked about earlier, whenever the Phoenix shows up, the Phoenix, because nothing can defeat the Phoenix, because if the Phoenix had been there, Edward the Confessor wouldn't have even died. He wouldn't have even been ill because all the Phoenix has to do is weep upon him and he would have been healed. So we've got to just say the Phoenix. And, you know, it is one of those things people even though, no, I may not think the phoenix existed, something existed that they believed in because it's a widespread belief, but there had to be something that they did. And I know all the Harry Potter fans are, are really disappointed because you thought it was just going to burst back to life. And instead, there's a worm. This never happened to Fox in Dumbledore's office. But nonetheless, it should have. Tougher to believe <laughs> if it, like you had to burst into flames and all that kind of stuff. So, And we're also... I mean, we're kind of assuming the healing properties because, you know, Clement doesn't mention that exactly. But I mean, to be fair, when the Phoenix shows up, if it's talked about in what seems to be a more like literal, tangible way, or if it is more figurative, the importance of the Phoenix is always attached to the sign of the resurrection. That's what gave the Phoenix its wonderment and its power as an image in the early church. And in that sense, it is a a beautiful picture. Well, moving on from the uh, battle of church history, artifacts, and lore, we want to get to our topic today. And today's topic is this question. Who chose the books that are in my Bible. Our first response might be, and for many people, say, that's easy. God chose them. And you know what? You're not entirely incorrect in that, (laughs) that God chose them in some sense. You'll see that as this all unfolds. But here's the real question, and it is how do people know, and how did people back in the early centuries know which books were the books that God chose? That's really the question we've got to wrestle with. How do we know? How did they know? And so what are some of the questions that you've received about this in ministry? What are some of the ones that people have asked you in your years of ministry? Yeah, it it almost 
always is a a variation of this question of who chose the books of my Bible, but usually it comes to you in something that they've that they've heard that has has you know bothered them, right? And, and so it's more like, hey, is it true that the the books in our Bible were just just selected by a bunch of dudes in one of uh, in a church council somewhere early on, right? So. So it comes in that sense, or if someone has heard a particular claim, a particular phrasing from the Roman Catholic Church, like, did the church really just decide and create this Bible that I that I have with me? Is that really how it came down to us? So it's usually some form of, of that type of question. It always has to do with humans putting together what we consider a divine sacred text. And that just the thought of that really creates kind of some problems for people. Yeah. When I started hearing the question was back around 2005 when the Da Vinci Code came out. That was really, and I'm not saying people never had the question before that, but suddenly I had youth, I had Sunday school teachers coming and asking questions about that. So, I mean, I know that was years ago now. I mean, that was over 15 years ago now, but yet I think there was a threshold moment that got passed at that point in which the skepticism went mainstream. And I think we see it now all over the internet. We see it all over in, in videos and in deconversion stories. You hear hints of this. But I, I really started hearing it back around 2005. And I think what happened in that is the Da Vinci Code didn't cause it. It tapped into a rising kind of skepticism that came with secularity is really what was happening at that point. But, but I think the Da Vinci Code marked a moment that things began to change in a tangible way among ordinary people. And so just to hear some of the things that the Da Vinci Code claims, for example, it says the Bible is a product of man, not of God. It has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. Again, this is the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, one of the characters in there who is supposedly an expert in this. And he goes on to say more than 80 gospels were considered for the New Testament. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. And so this notion of the Bible is a product of humanity, it's evolved through translations. There were more than 80 gospels and who really chose the Bible was Constantine or some council. All those things are extremely common. And to quote Luke Skywalker, amazing, every word of what you just said is wrong. <laughs> if that's what you're saying about the Bible, it wasn't chosen by Constantine. If Constantine actually was responsible for all the things that he gets called <laughs> responsible for, the man would have had no time to do anything else like putting together the Bible, inventing the Trinity. Like exactly, he, he would have accomplished a lot if he had, in fact, done all that it is said that he did. <laughs> Yeah, and this, I mean, the Da Vinci Code and all this really renewed this myth, which actually goes back, as we'll talk about, several hundred years. But this myth that the books of the Bible were chosen at the Council of Nicaea, which Constantine actually was there at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. I remember reading a review of one of my books of how we got the Bible. I, I was reading a review of it on Amazon. I usually never do that, but somebody said, you should really go look at this review. And somebody said in that, how can he talk about the history of the Bible? 
available and not tell how the books were chosen at Nicaea. In other words, it was that this person just assumed they were chosen at Nicaea. There wasn't even a question in their mind that it, that it was chosen at this Nicaea, that the council of Nicaea chose the books of the Bible. That wasn't even an issue. It was just, how can he not talk about that in this particular book? And so it's just so important for us to recognize this myth that's so popular in our culture. So let's talk about, let's think about, just so our, our listeners know, what did and didn't happen at the Council of Nicaea? Yeah, friends, you don't have to go pick up a book on this if you don't want, if you don't want to do some, you know, dive into particular councils of the earliest church history. But trust us when we tell you that the Council of Nicaea had some really big fish to fry at that moment in history. And at the time, the question of which are our authoritative books of scripture was not the big fight that they were having. It was much more about, hey, here is a person and his followers who are reading and interpreting scripture, scripture that we all agree on as authoritative, in a particular way that has caused some issues. And that is the historical figure of Arius, uh, who in trying to defend monotheism, you know, Deuteronomy 6, one God, right, in trying to be its biggest, most rabid defender against what he thought was this tritheism, this three gods belief. He's reading Proverbs and Colossians and, and, and putting some things together. And basically, long story short, comes to the belief and, and therefore the teaching that contradicted some of the main important most respected bishops of the time and uh, says, hey, this Jesus character who, who you call the son and whatnot, you're saying some things about him that aren't true. He, he is not God the way y'all are thinking of him. He was not eternal like the father is. He's not, he doesn't have, he's not made up of the same stuff. He doesn't have the same exact divine essence and being that the father does. Yes, he's a created being, yes, created before the foundations of the world, but still created, not eternal. And he eventually would say the same thing about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in a different way. And so this, like this was the reason for Nicaea, not only Nicaea in 325, but for the next, you know, 60 to 80 years afterwards, this was the primary conversation happening, not issues of the canon. Exactly. I mean, it's one of those things that they did a lot at Nicaea. They, there were a lot of things happened. They met for weeks and weeks at Nicaea. There were 318 bishops, leaders of the church that were there, and they did a lot of things, but they never mentioned the canon of scripture. They never mentioned that. And we actually have pretty decent records from the Council of Nicaea, and yet it's never mentioned. One of the ways I often put it is that the Council of Nicaea had as much to do with the formation of the canon as Dr. John McLean's American Pie had to do with Elvis. When the jester sang for the king and queen in a coat he borrowed from James Dean and a voice that came from you and me. Oh, and while the king was looking down, the jester stole his thorny crown. The courtroom was adjourned. 
So Don McLean, he benefited from Elvis. Like he mentions Elvis in the song, at least symbolically speaking of the king in the song. And Don McLean's music would never have existed without Elvis. But his song didn't make Elvis who he was. (laughs) His song actually derives from it. And at the Council of Nicaea, they mentioned the scriptures. They applied the scriptures, but they didn't make the scriptures what they were. In fact, scripture had made them who they were. In other words, they were formed by scriptures. They didn't create the scriptures. They had been formed by the scriptures. Now, I want to be make sure we're honest and upfront about this. There were still some questions about some books at the time of the Council of Nicaea. There were still some discussions happening about certain books that we know in our Bibles. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Scripture was what had formed them, and there was widespread agreement on the essence of what Scripture was. And in fact, in some sense, the lack of discussion about the books of the Bible— suggests that this actually wasn't a question that they were particularly worried about. They weren't worried about this question, or they would have talked about it, but they don't ever talk about it, which suggests that they weren't worried about it. If they weren't worried about it, then there was at some level, there was some level at which it was settled for them. As I said, there were some books that were up for question still. We'll talk about that. But there was a sense in which the canon was settled. Now, so where did this idea come from that the Council of Nicaea decided the canon of Scripture? And I, I love the story that this comes from. I wish it were true. It's just not true. So there's this legend that emerges in the ninth century. So this is 600 years after Nicaea that this legend emerges. We don't know for sure who came up with the legend. We really don't. But it's a great legend. It really is. I mean, I want to believe in it almost as much as I want to believe in the phoenix, but it's just not true. It just didn't happen this way at all. And so the legend is that at the Council of Nicaea, they piled all the books that even might be considered in the Bible, they piled all those books on a table, and they It was a communion table. And they gathered around this table, and they all prayed. And while they were praying for the Holy Spirit to show them which books belonged in the Bible, then all the books that didn't belong in the Bible fell through the table onto the floor, and only the books that remained that were supposed to be in the Bible stayed on top of the table. So the books that belonged in the Bible stayed on top of that table. Boom! All the rest fell on the floor. That is awesome. It is amazing. It is a great story. It is also totally false. It didn't happen that way at all. I do like it a lot. A lot like the the story of how the, you know, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament kind of came into being. It's a lot like that. And you're right. I'm I'm with you. It's like I I want that to be the case. It if 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 we could like if we could corroborate that story, then actually really a lot of these questions really would be solved, right? Mm-hmm. But we can't and we don't believe that's how it went. So the question before us is, how did early Christians decide which books belong in the Bible? Let's look at the New Testament first and and just think through how did early Christians decide this? Now, we've got our friend Bart Ehrman. He shows up a lot. And, And the reason I draw from him, just it's not because we're trying to pick on him or attack him. There's two reasons. One of them is he's one of the most visible skeptics about the Bible. So if somebody is is skeptical about the Bible, and often those who are going through a deconversion narrative, a deconversion story, they're drawing from Bart Ehrman in this. So that's one of the reasons. The other one is he's one of the best 
better examples. He's not an extremist. We could easily find somebody who's making really extreme, bizarre, weird claims about this and focus on them, but that wouldn't be fair. I want us to look at somebody who's making generally reasonable claims and uh, about this these topics and respond to them and engage them. We want to give our opponents the best argument they can have. That's why we're back to our boy, Bart. And he says, we're able to pinpoint the first time that any Christian of record listed the 27 books of our New Testament as the books of the New Testament. In the year 367 CE, common era, it's the same thing as saying AD, right? 367 AD, Athanasius lists our 27 books, excluding all others. And this is the first surviving instance of anyone affirming our set of books as the New Testament. And even Athanasius did not settle the matter. So this is a really common way of expressing this issue that it basically there was no canon of the New Testament until the year 367. And even after that, there were arguments. And the first even hint that we have that there was a New Testament at all was the, the one that we have of the 27 books we have is this letter from Athanasius, uh, this Easter letter that he sends out to the churches for which he's responsible around Alexandria, Egypt. And so there's three different problems with this reconstruction. One of them is that in the first place, Athanasius actually wasn't the first to list our 27 books. Now, I was taught that all the way through undergraduate and graduate school. I was taught that. I have said that in books. There are early books that I have written that I said that because I assumed that to be the case because of the fact that's what I was taught. And so I'm not really faulting Ehrman for that because of the fact that, that that's what I was taught. And you can find books where I've said that. You can find lectures that I've said that. But the fact is that that, that actually it wasn't the first place to find that. It really wasn't. Timothy would request if you ever find those books that you buy them up and take them out of circulation, maybe send them to him or something like that so that he can uh, so that he can get rid of them, you know, or you just uh, get the book and you cross that line out and just, you know, write the correction into the uh, into the margin. Yeah, and buy several hundred copies. In the interest of truth, <laughs> buy several hundred copies. So if you find one of those early books that I did that in, buy three, four hundred copies of that and just market them out and, and then give them away to people. I mean, just buy all those. So just in the interest of truth, we're talking about the interest of truth here and the interest of profit as well uh, is what we're talking about here. With an this. F, not a PH. We're <laughs> yes, kidding. We're yes, kidding, yes. folks. Don't take this seriously. Yes, we are, we are not. We are a nonprofit organization in two different ways. We are neither one of us <laughs> prophets and we are not making a profit. <laughs> and so Athanasius, though, he wasn't the first one to list these. He really wasn't. A guy named Origen of Alexandria in the first half of the third century, somewhere around the first half to the midpoint of the third century, actually listed the 27 books in a sermon on Joshua. Now, Michael Kruger, great scholar who's going to be on this program later on uh, in the season, he talks about this and he actually articulates this and and he was one of those who's brought this to the forefront of people's understanding of this particular issue that origin actually was the first one to mention it. So that's one problem with Ehrman's reconstruction. The second one is that there were some books that were never questioned. Here's the, the key point, the really important point that Ehrman and others often don't tell you, that there were some books that were never questioned. At the very least, at the very least, the four gospels Acts, Paul's letters, and 1 John were never 
question. That is to say, what I mean by that is that from the time those books first were put into circulation at all, those books were never questioned. They were known from the beginning that they came from authoritative sources, reliable sources, and were never questioned. Now, here's what I want us to see in that. If all we had, let's just suppose for a moment, I don't think this is true, but let's suppose for a moment that the church got it wrong on all the rest of the books, okay, that we have in our New Testament. So that only these, these ones I've mentioned, the four gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, and at least 1 John, let's suppose for a moment that the church got it wrong on the other books and that these were the only ones we ought to have. Do you know what? Every key doctrine that we believe as Christians would still be there. We don't lose anything from that. We don't lose anything if that's all there was. Now, I don't think the church did make a mistake in this. I, I don't. But if that's all we had, there's there's something that John Frame says from time to time. He says, the word of God is redundant in a good way. And I think that's true. It's redundant in a good way. The truths that really matter are truths that get mentioned repeatedly. And so even if all we had was the four gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, and First John, even if that's all we had, then you know what? Then we would have everything we need to know to trust Jesus and to follow him. Everything. And this is a similar response that we make to Ehrman's discussion about the all the massive number of, of errors and discrepancies that we see in the New Testament. It's, it's a similar response, right? Something that's really important to recognize is the standard that Christians would have used in their their recognition of authoritative books. And so many times the assumption is is that that the standard was a person or the authority of a particular person. Often the argument is that it was an important bishop, a early church leader, like you know, post New Testament. But really, the standard, what made these books authoritative as soon as they either were written and circulated, or if the discussion was a bit more prolonged, it had everything to do with its status, its reliability as eyewitness testimony, right? That it was written by either a, a an actual direct first level immediate eyewitness or a close associate of an eyewitness. Yeah, exactly. That's we see that early on in the church is that they had a standard and the standard wasn't who's strongest, who's most powerful, or whether these books say what we want them to say. None of those were what was going on. It was, can we connect this to an eyewitness or a close associate of an eyewitness? Now, that's not just us looking back saying, oh, retroactively, that's what looks like happened. We actually know that's what happened. In other words, there are texts that survive that actually let us know that. So we can look at just a couple of discussions that actually happened in the early church for us to see this actually at work. So there was a text that circulated widely, was super popular, called The Shepherd. In fact, if you look at the manuscript evidence, there's more fragments of The Shepherd than there are of Mark's gospel in the early church, which seems to suggest it was more popular than the gospel according to Mark. So that's how popular it was. And, and Shepherd— 
deal. Is a is a trip to read. It really is. <laughs> Shepherd is a wild book. It's an apocalypse, but it's not an apocalypse like Revelation. It's not an apocalypse like anything you've ever read. If you want to read it, great. It's a really interesting book. But it was so popular in the second century that there were a significant number of Christians who said, this ought to be a book that we include in what they called our books publicly read. And what they meant by books publicly read is what we mean when we say the word canon. That is to say, a text that is authoritative for the people of God. And so at some point in the later part of the second century, a group of church leaders gathered, and one of the topics of discussion was should we allow Hermas to be among the books publicly read? And there is something called the Muratorian Fragment that preserves part of their discussion and their decision. And it survives in a very poor Latin translation from a Greek original that's been lost, but it does survive to us. And this it just survives with this discussion about what do we do about this book that we call The Shepherd. And so read it to us. Let us know what it says in part in this particular text. Yeah, the uh, fragment says, Hermas composed The Shepherd quite recently in our times in the city of Rome, while his brother, Pius, or, or Pius, if you want to be really classically Latin, Pius the overseer served as overseer of the city of Rome. While it should indeed be read, it cannot be read publicly for the people of the church. It can't be counted among the prophets, for their number has been completed. Nor can it be counted among the apostles, for it is after their time. And so, so often the discussion of canon will use the term, is it apostolic or is it uh, connected to an apostle? And what we're saying is that's the same thing. To be connected to an apostle is to be connected to an eyewitness, someone from the era of eyewitness accounts. Several places in scripture, even within the New Testament, we see just little snippets of mentions that show how, hey, eyewitness testimony, the fact that we can point to people were there, people saw this, people, uh, some of these people have not fallen asleep, right? Think about the resurrection and uh, Jesus' 40 days on earth. Eyewitness testimony was a massively important, it was the standard for the authority of these books. Yeah, and we see that in this text, they're wrestling with this. And notice a couple of different things. One of them is they say, it should indeed be read. Now, that goes against what Da Vinci Code, other places, other people, inside of this assumption that the church went around trying to destroy and burn all these other books that didn't belong in the Bible. That's totally false. They said about Shepherd of Hermas, they said, look, it should indeed be read. We want you to read this for your devotional reading, is how we might say it today. We want you to read this. It's a good book. Go read this book. But it shouldn't be among the books publicly read in our worship because it was written way too late to represent eyewitness testimony. It's after the time of the prophets, that is to say the Old Testament, and it's after the time of the apostles. Therefore, while it should indeed be read, it shouldn't be read publicly for the people of the church as an authoritative testimony. So we see this. This is the second century. One other example, also from the second century, this one from the end of the second century. There's a text shows up called the Gospel of Peter. Now, I laugh when I read in Da Vinci Code, it says more than 80 Gospels. There, there were, okay, first off, even in the most generous interpretation of what a Gospel might be, there were not 80 Gospels. With the most generous interpretation, you have around 30 different texts that you might call 
gospel if you classify everything that reports on the life of Jesus as a gospel. There were about 30 at most. That's the absolute most we could actually extrapolate out. So there were some other texts in the second century and more in the third and fourth century that circulated that people might have called gospels. There was one called Gospel of Peter. But here's the thing. Early Christians knew that these texts came too late to be considered eyewitness testimony. And they knew that. They knew that. And so this Gospel of Peter shows up in Antioch. The region around Antioch is where it shows up. And the pastor of the bishop in Antioch, his name was Serapion. So he's responsible not only for the church in Antioch, but for these little churches out around Antioch, including one that asks him the question, can we read Gospel of Peter? Can we read this book? And he told them, yes, you can read it. Now, he wasn't telling them it's canonical. He wasn't telling them it was authoritative. He was just telling them, much like Shepherd of Hermas, you can read this as a text. Again, our term that we might use is devotional reading. Read this as this. That's what he's letting them know. Go ahead and read this in that way. He had never read it, but he he said, you could read it this way. He should have probably read it first because there are some hints of a heresy in it called docetism, which is that Jesus only seemed to be human. He wasn't truly human. We can talk about that another time, but there were some hints of that in it that concerned him. So he finally sits down and reads it and gets really agitated because he realizes he's told them to read this book that has some false teachings in it. And so he writes this letter that's preserved to us by a man named Eusebius, who was a church historian. And so this is in late second century that we see this happening, or it may be the very, very early third century. But nonetheless, he writes this letter to the church. And in this letter, he says, we accept the writings of Peter and the other apostles just as we would accept Christ. As for those with a name falsely ascribed, the Greek word there is pseudepigrapha. He actually uses right there, a name falsely ascribed. We deliberately dismiss them, knowing that no such things have been handed down to us. I will hurry to be with you again. Expect to see me shortly. But here's, <laughs> I mean, it's just this, he's agitated as you can feel it. Even in the Greek text of this, you can feel that he's worried. He's concerned about his people. But here's what's fascinating. Do you know how he determines that they shouldn't read it? He says in this letter, he compared it with the other texts that had been handed down. And he says, this can't come from Peter because it disagrees with the other texts handed down that we know for sure come from the apostles. So he says, that's what he says. We accept writings of Peter and other apostles as we would accept Christ. In other words, what they say, we accept that as what Jesus himself is telling us. Why? Because there were eyewitnesses who learned from Jesus. But he says, this text is not one of those because the teachings in it are teachings that they would not have. How do I know what they would have said? I've got their words that I can read what they actually said. And therefore, I reject this. You see, again, this is a real life example from this time period before the Council of Nicaea, by the way, before, by at least a century in which early Christians very clearly have a standard from which they're working here. Also an early real-life example of an emergency member meeting that yes. was called by Serapion. <laughs> like, oh, this is, hey, we got to get together and talk about this, y'all. Uh, someone get the crockpots. We're going to have we're going to have a little potluck action and talk about the Gospel of Peter. Question, Timothy. We know, I mean, maybe not everyone listening, but we know they're were other books written, also written by some person we that we probably don't know, but that they said they were someone else. And 
that these books don't have just like a, a tinge of heresy, but but by and large, you know, from start to finish, just say and teach some things that directly fly in the face of of you know the scripture that we call canon. What was the church's response to those? Right, the narrative is that they hunted these things down. You know, tried to have a an early book burning and whatnot. And, and we're saying, okay, okay that's a, a bit extreme. But surely the early church didn't say, "Hey, these things over here, these really terrible, you know, false teachings." Like I'm thinking, the like Gospel of Thomas, right? Something like that. Surely they didn't say, "But go ahead and check it out." Like it's good devotional material, did they? Not really, no. And I think there's a couple of different things that are important for us to think about here. One of them is, for the most part, they actually that those books are being used by the Gnostic sects, and so that's who's using them. And the church recognized that that was an aberrant form of Christianity. So we we see that first off that that those are over there. They're using those texts, and we're using a different set of texts. And even the Gnostics seem to have recognized they're using texts in a different way. They aren't interested in does it represent historical fact. They're interested in how does this inform our liturgies, the, our kind of mysterious, esoteric rituals that we're under how does this how does this help with those and to move us toward in the gnostics minds a spiritual connection with with the true god so they're doing something different with it and people recognize that so that's one of the things i think going on in that the other one is it was very clear to the early christians that these books didn't come from apostolic authorities they were written too late they were written at a later time so as far as we know something like the Gospel of Thomas didn't come to the church in a way where someone wrote a letter like what was written to Serapion saying, hey, what do we do with this? Can we read it? Are we sure that this is not canonical? That's it's it was just such an other thing that it was so easily recognizable as not eyewitness that it just didn't even come onto someone's radar to have a discussion about this as canonical. So let's think about it just really practically, the table of contents in your Bible. Let's think about the table of contents in your Bible. So maybe grab your Bible and open it up to the table of contents, go down to the New Testament, and ask yourself, were all these books really from apostolic eyewitnesses? And so let's go through those. Matthew, Gospel according to Matthew comes from Matthew the Apostle, the follower of Jesus. Now, there was an earlier form of it, according to some of the church historians, that was an Aramaic form. We're not going to talk about that in this episode. Maybe we'll do a future episode just on that. But we're but that was not something we're going to talk about. Right now, we're just going to talk about the fact that it comes from Matthew, who was a follower of Jesus. Mark, the gospel according to Mark, comes from John Mark. But what's important about that is, according to all sorts of early testimony, is that Mark had traveled with Peter translating for Simon Peter and so memorized Simon Peter's stories. And so as he memorized Simon Peter's stories, he actually recorded what Simon Peter had said in the gospel according to Mark. Luke and Acts, written by the same author, Luke, who was connected with the Apostle Paul and traveled with the Apostle Paul. So that's the apostolic witness right there. John, of course, a follower of Jesus and uh, somebody who was with Jesus all the way through, the Apostle John. And then we get Paul's letters. And most of Paul's letters, 
no question about that, at least from our perspective. Some people would doubt Paul's authorship of certain letters, but I think that we're just going to look at those and recognize that there are 13 of these letters that come in under the name of the Apostle Paul, but that brings us to one letter that comes in under Apostle the Apostle Paul, but wasn't necessarily written by Paul, and that's the book of Hebrews. Often Hebrews is connected with Paul, and it should be. Hebrews was received on the authority of the Apostle Paul, and rightly so, because in the latter chapters of Hebrews, chapter 13, it mentions Timothy. So they knew, even though they weren't sure who wrote the book, they knew that it was from the circle of people around Paul and with Paul, and therefore it should rightly be received as the Word of God, as something authoritative. And then we have James, who was a half-brother of Jesus, as well as someone considered an apostle, certainly an eyewitness of Jesus. We have Jude a little bit later, who's kind of similar to that, half-brother of Jesus, obviously an eyewitness of Jesus. And first and second Peter, first, second, third John, these come from apostles, those who followed Jesus, and then the book of Revelation at the end from John. Now, there's probably in the early church two different individuals named John, and here's why that doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter for this purpose is because the early church recognized both of them were people who had actually followed Jesus. And so even if some of these books, second, third John, for example, came from this other individual named John, who was a follower of Jesus, doesn't matter for our purposes for this. The reason it doesn't matter is because the standard is an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus, who actually was with Jesus and saw Jesus. That's who were accepting their words as true. And so Jesus sent these people out, but these people were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And so in some sense, the canon is resurrection-shaped. And what I mean by that is that it is shaped by the miracle of the resurrection. I believe in the canon because I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection because there's good historical evidence, both inside and outside the texts that we know as the New Testament, that the resurrection really happened. And so we trust the books from the people who saw the risen Lord Jesus. And so the canon is resurrection-shaped. Yeah. So the question that might be in the minds of our listeners are, okay, but what about the Old Testament, which was written long before the resurrection by authors who didn't know the name or person of Jesus? How do we get that part of our canon? And I would say that ultimately we receive the Old Testament as true because Jesus believed the Old Testament and we accept it on the authority of Jesus. Again, it's resurrection shaped. Jesus predicted his own resurrection and Jesus who predicted his own resurrection, he believed in the Old Testament. I think that's a really crucial thing for us to recognize that sometimes people don't. And that is that Jesus believed the Old Testament. Jesus actually trusted what the Old Testament had to say. And we receive it because of that. Yeah. Jesus, in this case, is our eyewitness. Yeah, we have his words. We have a record of of his eyewitness account of the authority of the Old Testament as God's word, that when the Old Testament speaks, that God speaks. And that's precisely how Jesus, God the Son incarnate, viewed the writings of the Old Testament. 
it matters for us today about that because of the fact we get some people, some of them with really good intentions, <laughs> who call themselves red letter Christians. That is to say, I believe what Jesus said, but I doubt or I downplay the rest of the Bible. Because, I mean, some of you may not even be aware of this. It used to be that often you'd buy a Bible and the letters of the, the words that Jesus spoke were printed in red and the rest was printed in black. And so these people call themselves red letter Christians. They believe in what Jesus had to say, but they doubt or they downplay the rest of what the Bible has to say. Here's the problem with that. Jesus believed the Old Testament. If you're a red letter Christian, that's a contradiction because if you believe what it says in the red letters, you're going to believe the black letters because Jesus believed the black letters of the Old Testament to use that. You see that in Matthew chapter four, Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter 21, John 10, 35, that says scripture cannot be broken. Jesus looks at the Old Testament and Jesus believes the Old Testament. And so if you believe in Jesus and you believe in what Jesus said, you got to believe the Old Testament, because if you don't believe the Old Testament, you don't really believe what Jesus said. And you, you've got to believe this. And how did Jesus show that this was the truth? Through his resurrection. That's right. Through his resurrection. Scripture says about itself, it cannot be broken. And Scripture also shows you, hey, if it could be, here's how it could happen, right? Like the Old Testament even gives you the, hey, put me to the test challenge, right? Deuteronomy. 1821. How do we know if the Lord has not spoken? Well, his word, what he has said will come true, won't come true. Or it'll either not be fulfilled, promises will not be fulfilled, or the promises that have been made, the things that have, have been said will come true. Actually, we'll see a, a contradiction. We'll see that these promises, these prophecies were indeed false. And if they're false, this can't be the word of God. But in fact, the Old Testament is fulfilled over and over. And ultimately, supremely, the words of Jesus are fulfilled. He says he will be raised from the dead. And he was. He was. And so what we see again is Jesus declares the Old Testament to be true. He shows his words to be true by being raised from the dead. And therefore, we know that this is the word of God because of the resurrection of Jesus. The Old Testament canon as well is resurrection-shaped. It's resurrection-formed. It's resurrection-shaped. We believe the Bible because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's crucial for us. And sometimes if somebody's asked about this, I'll say, you know what? You die and come back and I'll listen to your opinion. Until then, I'll stick with the guy who did about the Bible, <laughs> because that's what Jesus believed about the Bible. I, it's so important for us to recognize this, that it comes as a package deal, the authority and the truthfulness of scripture and the resurrection of Jesus. Those aren't separable things. One flows into the other. And the three men I admire most The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost They caught the last train for the coast The day the music died Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. 
Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. What I'm